Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On the Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Courtney, a survivor of domestic and institutional abuse. Courtney speaks to us about her experience navigating the family court, child welfare, and medical and mental health systems as a protective mom of a son who was allegedly physically abused, neglected, and sexually abused by his father. We explore the ways in which family courts ignore evidence of abuse, minimize it, and act as a source of institutional re-traumatization for victims and their children. We also look at the impact that it has on the protective parent, child, and society as a whole. Welcome, Courtney. Hi, thank you. You're here as a survivor of domestic abuse and institutional abuse and as a protective mom. And I wanted to address, I've done this before where people have come on the show and they've used pseudonyms and they've explicitly stated why. But since the last one was so long ago, I wanted to just remind the audience of why this is. So why are you speaking to us today under the pseudonym? Courtney? Mostly because my situation is still ongoing in my efforts to protect my child. And it seems that it's the safest way to tell my story, but also keep my son protected. And in the past, other survivors have shared that they were also concerned about retaliation by the court. So if they were identified, that the court would ratchet up the gender bias that they were already experiencing, either in terms of having them speak less, not following the rules of evidence or procedure, where if your side is objecting, that all of the objections would be overruled, for example, uh, and just having just overall less time to present your case. Is that also one one of your concerns? Yes, I think any time... A protective parent shares their story um, from their point of view that they put themselves at a risk in the court's eyes that anything that you can say, you say, can be used against you in the eyes of the court's discretion. And that can put fear into your ability to share your story because of defamation, because of various factors where the retaliation can come back. Okay, well, let's jump right into your own experience. Uh, You are a survivor of domestic abuse, you stated. Can you talk about the beginnings of your relationship with, is it your husband still, or have you gotten a divorce? Is it your ex-husband? Ex-husband. Can you talk about the beginnings of your relationship with your ex-husband and when and how the relationship manifested in abusive behaviors or tactics? Well, when I met him for the first time, um, he was so characteristically different than most men that I had met. And this sort of attracted me to him because he portrayed a weakness and being very naive and and almost childlike at times. 
And it was, you know, in an area that people were very focused on being outdoors. And, and it was so extremely different that I found it charming. He was, you know, an artist. He was eclectic. He was funny. He was smart. Everyone in this small town loved him. He volunteered his time, uh, mostly with, you know, children's plays and their sets. And coming from an area in the world of finance, it was, you know, the men that I had been with in the past seemed very predictable. I had also grown up with uh, many brothers and felt that I had pretty good grasp at the typical male behavior. But I was also a saver at the time when I, whether it was a friend or you know, someone that I was meeting that was new, I, I would often get sucked in by their ability to, or their need to not necessarily be saved, but protect them. Because I also had one brother who I did that most of, you know, our childhood. He had some deficiencies socially and I was his protector, even though he was older. And I think that this person that I'd met sort of mixed in with, you know, on a psychological level, that is, you know, with my brother and, oh, I, I, can, I can help him look normal. I can help him, you know, see the beauty of a relationship. How soon into your relationship did the dynamics shift? It was soon after we got married and we had been together for say two years and you know we were both getting older and you know the next step I guess was to get married and for me I think that there there may have been signs but again I would attribute it to you know the red flags I would I would sort of make excuses for and I would say oh well it's just because you know he's never really had a relationship he's never really had a long-term relationship you know, and then I sort of morphed into this role of becoming the relationship teacher. And that obviously, in, in some levels, must have made myself feel valuable in the relationship because, you know, I would ignore things that now I see so clearly. But soon after we married, the shift was more significant in the fact that the behaviors that he displayed to seem to be a little bit more intentional and confusing and, you know, lies that I would catch him in. And then somehow the lie would become my fault. And, you know, then the silent treatments. And so the patterns, you know, became where there would be lies. I would find out about the lies. Then, you know, in a very calm way, try to understand the lies and why there was this need to lie. And one consistent pattern was that when there was ever where I, in the relationship where I felt that I was holding accountability, I would be, you know, given the silent treatment. And for me personally, that was the worst torture um, because for me, the most beautiful thing about any relationship 
is this transparency and this ability to communicate and be open and share and and be vulnerable and share in that vulnerability. And so then it would get to a point where I was, I, I can't take anymore. Like, let's try to talk about this. And in the recovery at that time was often somehow twisted always into being my fault. But I was so uncomfortable with the silent treatment that I just wanted things to get back to a point of normalcy. When you wanted things to get back to normal, did that include, uh, I'm just drawing from my own experience, you know, you having to admit to things that you did that were wrong, that were put upon you that you didn't agree to, that in fact you thought maybe the other person instigated or the other person should take accountability for just to make the peace? Yes, at times, but I think it was more where I would walk away and feel better that it had been resolved, but still in a state of total confusion of how the conversation would go and the elevation of his behavior, his voice, his body language, and how I would retreat myself to sort of keep it calm and try to successfully get to the end of it. And a lot of times I think that I would give in, not necessarily taking the blame, but more just recognizing that it was too exhausting to try to come to some resolution because it felt impossible to have some middle agreement of miscommunication or uh, exposing any vulnerability on his end. So it sounds like you were in this perpetual state of confusion. Does that sound accurate? Oh, yes. There would be times that I would be standing in the kitchen trying to process what had just happened. And then I would try to go back almost at times and say, help me understand what you meant by this. And then it would continue to elevate. So then the wall would be shut down again. And I would just say, I'm just moving on. It's just better to move on. So while these patterns were repeating themselves, what was your emotional state in terms of how you were feeling towards your husband at the time? Did you feel connected? Did you feel like you still loved him and that you cared about him? Or were you were those feelings sort of so disconnected from what was ex- what you were experiencing that you couldn't even access them? I guess I'm trying to get to what was motivating you to stay in the relationship. Because I believed that he could grow within the relationship. Um, and I felt that I was willing to make the sacrifices, you know, with these short periods of silent treatments and and conflict that would I always had a belief that healthy conflict made a relationship stronger it's just how I had been with my close college friends throughout life is that I rarely viewed conflict as something negative I always wanted to view it as something that's building and growing and I think I told myself that that's what was occurring until the point when the patterns became so consistent and so clear with every other aspect of the relationship that 
And that was once there was a child involved. That is sort of what woke me up. And so at some point you had your son and what what was the chronology, the sequence of events that led to you discovering that your son was being mistreated? Soon after my son was born, the first thing I remember was he was three months old. And, you know, you, your first baby, you learn how to hold it properly. You learn how to feed it properly. And he would take the baby from a feeding or from a nap and throw him into the air. You know, like you would see in a lovely movie, you know, a father throwing his child into the air and catching him. And because of his sensitivity of any level of criticism, I always had to be extremely conscious on my approach, especially with the baby. And it was, I love that you're having so much fun and really enjoying the baby, but we have to remember that his neck really isn't strong enough to withhold being thrown into the air and being caught. And that was not very well received. And so he would continue to take opportunities to look me in the eye and throw the baby into the air. What was happening with, the, with your son at that point? Was he crying out of fear? Was his arms and legs flailing? What, what was happening? I don't remember, you know, I, to, to be honest with you, I don't remember him screaming or flailing. I think it's just more of that moment of total confusion. And, and to cycle back is that, you know, I had a dog before I had a child. And as soon as I got this dog, who was the cutest little puppy, she got injured under his watch. And she sliced her foot, you know, on this landscaping trim and needed surgery and was in a cast for eight weeks. And the day that she got the cast off, he looked at me, grabbed the Frisbee and threw it in the exact same spot. And she re-sliced the entire tendon again. This happened two more times after that. And so it's the same thing, Terry. It's your processing isn't, you, you sit there and you say, this isn't possible that someone would do this on purpose. Is there something missing? And then there would never be an apology. There would, you know, he would just walk away. And then I would be left with a bleeding dog. And so the, going back to throwing the baby in the air, it's more of how do I stop this effectively? So that's what I think I remember, you know, at the forefront. And so time continued where the child started to have severe skin problems. And it turned out that it was um, a severe case of eczema. And so we had been to the top doctors in the state and I had spent 10 days there learning how to care for children with this severe eczema. And it involved bathing and creams and steroids and wet wraps and very, very uh, intense way to keep my son's skin from having pus and infections and staph and all those things. He was there for two of the 10 days because he got frustrated and had to leave. 
So during the instructions, the doctor said, when you bathe this child, nothing is to be in the water. Bacteria is his biggest enemy. You keep a child like this away from all citrus because citrus to a child with severe eczema is like battery acid. And so we come home and I'm doing three baths a day and it's, you know, it's exhausting, let alone a baby. And, and I'm, you know, on the routine and I'm getting it down. One night he says, well, I'd like to do his bath tonight. I said, great. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Let me help get everything set up. And I come down to get those creams and things ready. I walk into the bathroom and he's in the tub with the child. So, you know, your first reaction is, oh, you know, you hear the doctor's orders behind you, but at the same time, you're like, it's the father, he wants to be with his son in the tub, and but the bacteria is a big issue. And so, you know, I, I get closer to the tub and I notice that he's wearing underwear. And I thought, oh, okay, well, how can I approach this? Um, I don't want to discourage him from participating in the baths. And so, you you know, you go through this whole mental process of your tone and basically giving the shit sandwich, right? You're doing such an awesome job. I'm so grateful for the help and that you're having fun in the tub. I think I'm going to get him out right now so we can get him out of the tub and get his cream done. And you know, maybe next time, you know, we can just keep them in the baby tub and, you know, trying to phrase it in a positive way. And I was not successful. And that ended up into a rage and silent treatment and that continued. Then it was about four weeks later, I'm getting dinner ready. I asked him to hold the baby. And while I put the food on the, on the, dinner table and I'm running a plate to the to the table and I look over and he has his hand behind the baby's head with a lime in his other hand putting it to the child's mouth and so you know I I have very good peripheral vision and I I, I thought I saw what I saw and I go back and I'm and it was like no 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 not 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 the lime not the lime and it was instant you know his face his neck, red, swollen. Um, I'm like, oh, let's get him in the bath. Let's get him in the bath. And, you know, it was a panic, panic and everything, just the the redness just kept spreading down his chest. And then I, I said, well, I have to take him to the ER. So I take him to the ER. They have to give him a shot. And, you know, it was some kind of reaction. And that, again, was you process and you process and you think, well, did he forget? I mean, did he forget about the line? Well, yeah, I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. I forgot that the doctor said that. Oh, okay. Okay. And then you just progress on forward because you have a baby to care for and you just don't have time to try and figure it out. First of all, babies don't eat limes, right? (laughs) And, well, right. And so that excuse is when you were speaking, I have to say you're, you're a great storyteller. And I was holding back my laughter because even though this is not a funny story at all, but it's just so absurd that you were managing this dance. You're, you're managing trying to not, 
you know, it's almost like a a ticking time bomb, right? Like you don't want to ignite this person accidentally and then have to manage a bigger problem. Right. And it was also, you know, I took on a responsibility of trying to like the relationship, trying to see the beauties of, you know, being a father and participating and, you know, getting the baby to laugh and all of those things that at that time was very difficult. You know, it was, he was more interested in having the baby and holding him, you know, like one of those puppets uh, where you put your hands in and make them talk and, and walking around town, you know, and, and that was the role that he preferred at that time. So performative fatherhood. Yes. Like, look at me. This is an extension of, of me. And what a great father I am and how I should get the attention that I deserve and need, I guess. Right. And so as more injuries happened, you know, it was, can we talk and let's try to talk and let's see how we can manage your participation and what you want and the baby's needs and my needs. And, and that conversation did not go anywhere. And the one clear thing that I recall was him feeling that I was pitying him. And I could see that the rage was coming and I walked out. I said, well, let's try maybe tomorrow. We'll try to re-address this and see if we can work through it. So what were you feeling when you were having these conversations? Were you fearful? When the, The rage seemed to be, after the baby, the rage became more evident. And... And when I think back on it, I don't know if my awareness was more sensitive because there was a baby or because it was more evident or because I think after you have a baby as a woman, just something happens and you, you become keenly aware to your environment in general like I wasn't before personally. So it's just, it's always hard to kind of go back to that place. And, and, and really try to get a grasp. But I do remember saying, walk out, like walk out of the room, close the door and go into the room where the baby was. And so as soon as I walked out, I heard the explosion, the rage, things being thrown, cursing. And then I heard my dog. And, you know, it's that dog scream that if you have a pet, it's like the bar, bar, bar. And that was my first baby. And so I go through the door and I see her eye and it's bleeding. And I instinctually just say, get the dog out. And so this dog would not move. She was so terrified. And so that's when, you know, the first domestic violence incident occurred. You know, I was trying to get the dog out and she was like, I was sliding her basically across the wood floor And he came after me and spewed hate. And, you know, I just remember being on my back thinking he's going to kill me. Uh, And I'd never in my life had ever felt that. But at the same time, the baby was crying and it was just, that's all I could think about. And so I crawled away 
validating how how he felt and just to get him to back off of me and unleash the rage. And I locked the door and was behind the room in the baby's room. And that's when I left. So when you left, I'm guessing you're the one who filed for divorce. Oh no. Oh no. The story, um, I, I left knowing, you know, he, at this point, I, I knew somewhat of his family wealth, but not as much as I learned after I got divorced. But I, I never made a report. I was terrified. I just thought, I could work through this. I, we'll work through this. I knew that I would never go back, but I wanted to, I wanted to be the couple that would figure this out. I wanted to be better than a court system or a custody battle. And so I kept trying to meet with him and I included our therapist and we tried to come up with safety plans and, but things just kept elevating and elevating and elevating. And I kept trying to meet and meet and have more meetings. And it was one day and it was in July and he started to threaten me that you're going to lose custody. And, and then this, these are the words that I'll never forget. There are going to be consequences for you leaving. And, and I didn't really know what that meant. I just was like, okay, guess this isn't going well. And the next day, because at this point we had agreed to, you know, these very short daily one-hour visitations. And the next day was the first injury. And it was a, you know, a 30-minute visit. And my son was returned with, you know, large bruise on his forehead and one on his chin. And then it was a week later where I retrieved him and he was, the father was laughing and saying, he's going to have a shiner tomorrow. And, you know, you the eye was swollen down the side and up on the forehead again. And then the next time it was a bruise, you know, on the head. And then my son's testicles were red and raw. I was like, wow, that's really weird. Maybe it's the eczema diaper. I dismissed it. Then two weeks later, it was another injury, you know, this one under the hair, and it was a big, large egg, red testicles again. Wow, this is just strange. I wonder if he's got yeast or something going on. And so I you know, made an appointment with the pediatrician, and yeah, these injuries are happening, and how do I know if my child is, you know, conscious when he's you know, waking up from falling so hard and because I would get texts after a significant head injury and being like, yeah, he fell. Um, I don't think he blacked out. I don't know. It's hard to say. So I went to this pediatrician with the plan of telling her and showing her some of the photos of these injuries. And he showed up. He'd never been to a pediatrician appointment at that point. And so the appointment didn't go anywhere. And I actually had to call her back and she ended up making a report that got screened out. So then it was a week later, I dropped off my son and the father laughed and said, I'm not bringing him back. 
Sorry, how old was your son at this point? Um, a year, year and a half. So pre-verbal, so he couldn't say anything, obviously, of what was happening. And he was still being breastfed, and um, and he had, you know, high medical needs. So, you know, he walked away. And um, so I was like, oh, now what do I do? Um, called the local police. I'm like, what, what can I do? And they're like, there's nothing you can do. He, he can take him as long as he wants. And so I accepted that and offered the medication and breast milk. And, and he refused to pick it up and went down to where he lived. And I brought my mom and we drove down there and uh, knocked on the door and had everything on the chair on the outside. And and he answered and, why don't you come in? And I didn't come in. And, and I said, you know, he'll sleep much better if you just let me nurse him for the night. And started to elevate. And I said, he'll sleep much better if you just let me, you know, nurse him. So he brings him up and he's soaking wet and has clothes on for our, like a three-month-old baby. And so he's, you know, demanding that I feed him right there and then. And it's cold, late September. And, um, I said, well, I, I can't really breastfeed standing. Can I go to the car? So he runs ahead of me, takes my car keys and throws them. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll find them later. And so I, he then proceeds to go sit in the back seat. So then I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll sit in the front. So I go to sit in the front seat and he takes, basically takes me aggressively, throws me with the baby. And it was one of those moments where I don't know if it was because the baby was in my hands or whatever, but I think if I were alone, I probably would have fallen back and, you know, hit my head or something. But it was, you know, I found a way to fall and kind of continue. And I ran and I ran into someone's house and opened their door and locked it and called 911. And that was, you know, when he was finally arrested and, and we were put both put under a protection order and then I filed for divorce. So when you say both, both of you were put under an order, he, you weren't allowed to go near him. So it was like a cross order? No, both me and the child were under a protection order. Yes. So, you know, I have to say everything that you shared just now including your initial perspective when you first met your ex-husband, it sounded a lot, there were so many parallels to my own experience because like I chose my ex um, who's not a traditional alpha male because you think, oh, beta males are going to be, they're more sensitive, they're going to be more you know, kind and loving and generous. And of course, it's that particular person. I mean, it could be the case, but with my ex, he just was, it was an act. It was performative, the affectation, I should say. And because I don't actually know where the real him is, but everything that you said around like the consequences, like stepping over the line, stepping to the line, but not crossing the line so that it's criminal, but it being wrong and harmful, putting you in a position where you can't do anything about it. It's like there's a playbook for abusers and they just know what to do and they know how to get away with it. Yes, it's, it's sadly something that 
many of us learn is that truth and honesty and doing what's right in this situation doesn't get you very far, but I won't, I won't stop. What my values are as, as a mom and as a human. Let's turn to what happened when you encountered the various systems, um, when you brought your son, for example, to the doctors at various points. Was there any questioning about how the injuries were made? What role the father or you had, you know, when he had that, uh, that eczema reaction, the skin reaction on his mouth from the Lyme? Did they blame you? Did they ask you? Did they note it in the charts? What happened there? No, I think, you know, in those early stages, you know, it was more of this, we're discovering that this child is extremely sensitive to Lyme and had this severe reaction. The injuries, you know, there was, it was two months where there were were many and, you know, I had taken pictures of it and just sort of told the pediatrician She shared that she made a report and never received a phone call back. And it wasn't until temporary orders where we heard from the social worker who testified uh, to advocate for the father that we really understood that she had screened it out and had no concerns um, and that the father was great. So the doctor that saw your son, instead of calling the state child abuse hotline, called the social worker? Yes. In rural parts of the state, that is the procedure, is to call the local Department of Human Services Department. And, you know, and especially in a small town, many times the caseworkers have had 20-year relationships with people. What about the time that your son's penis uh, had some bruising, you said? Well, that, that was a different time. So I think the next part of the story of the court procedures is significant. So as many moms know, when you first experience the first aspect, I guess, of the court's it's horrifying, right? I mean, you're, it's like something that I remember seeing on TV. And I think the only thing was at that time was like Judge Wapner or something. And the, the environment itself is extremely intimidating. And, and so I, I had really no idea what to expect. And so he was on the stand first and his attorney said, well, let's just, let's just get this out of the way. Let's just get this out of the way. And my attorney looks at me and I'm like, I have no idea. So she proceeds to ask him questions and goes into detail about sexually assaulting a four-year-old girl and talking about it as if he were making blueberry pancakes. You know, I, I put the, put my tongue here, you know, she said she wanted to go to bed. I pulled her pants down and, and went into detail on the stand. Uh, who was this four-year-old girl r- relative to him? When did this happen? He claimed that he was 16 years old and that she was a family friend. And he was, you know, angry that he didn't get to go somewhere where everyone else was going and had to babysit her and that she liked his 
other family member better than him. And he then said he was drunk and but remembered how many shots that he had. And so, you know, that is one thing. But at the same time, as someone, you know, in this first experience of sitting in a courtroom and then you're hearing that and then it's just like everything just that clouding and every, and then I was starting to make these weird connections because like the intimate life that we had was so bizarre and strange and more intimate life that we didn't have, maybe I should say. And, and so it's just this, everything was cycling through my head of, oh my God, like I married this person. And, and then, you know, he claims that I knew and she knew, she knew about it. I told her about it. No one in his family knows about it, but, you know. So we proceeded to show the judge the pictures of the head bruises, the face bruises, the the odd testicles. And uh, so she's like, well, we're just going to order supervised parenting. So was the judge, what was the response of the people in the courtroom when your husband at the time was testifying about this? Well, there was no one in the courtroom. It was just him and his attorney and me and my attorney and the judge. But I don't know if I remember anyone's reactions. I think the judge was showed more concern over, you know, the numerous injuries to the dog. But again, you know, it's it's a it's an experience that when I think back on it, it was the shock value and that, you know, and then him talking and as if it was something normal and that there was no problem, you know, and I think that that sort of was a pattern in the relationship was, you know, he would, he would provide you with this information, you know, as if he was this open and honest person that a lot of times just completely shocked you. And then you felt this level of like empathy. So supervised parenting began. And during that time, you know, my son still suffered a mild concussion but relatively, you know, that year was mostly um, uneventful. Uh, you know, he violated protection orders a couple times. PRE was ordered. And PRE is the Parental Responsibility Evaluation, you know, hired or court-ordered, an average cost of about $16,000. They come into your home. They look through your drawers, you know, making sure that you're safe and uh, interview everyone you know and treat you like you've done something wrong (laughs) for being a parent. Um, And then we had the final orders uh, soon after that, and we presented all the same information. It was three days long. It was 12 hours each day. It was horrible uh, on every level. And then, you know, we waited months for a decision. And that decision came out, you know, in early 2017 that, yes, there's a preponderance of evidence that this father has injured the child, you know, this time, this time, and he listed all of the times and the father's been neglectful. The father can't take care of the child's medical needs, but, you know, we're in a rural community and we don't really have the resources to supervise them. So we're going to unsupervise them but restricted, you know, just a few hours, three times a week and hope for the best. So that started and six, six weeks in, or maybe it was three weeks into it. 
giving my son his bath, putting on all of his cream. And, you know, it's a very, everything is time-based. So when you get a child out of the tub, you have to seal everything, all the moisture. And I looked at his rectum area and I said, oh, wow, that's, that's bizarre. And then you, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, maybe that's like a food allergy and maybe he's developing some kind of allergy or something. And so I, you know, kind of took a quick picture of it. And uh, next day I wake up and I, you know, send it to his skin doctors. And I'm like, is this, you know, is he starting to show the signs of a food allergy? What is this? This looks really odd. And she said, no, I would take him to his pediatrician. Okay. And and honestly, I wasn't making any connections. You know, I just, I really thought it was something skin related. And to this day, I still don't know. So we go to the pediatrician and she's taking measurements and looking at it and there's bruising sort of by it, but, oh, maybe that's a vein. I don't know what it, you know, um, I'm going to, you know, make a call into the department. Um, this is a little concerning. And, um, and at this time my son was not three yet. And, uh, so, you know, here I, then I go through the first true experience of dealing with um, child protection. And I was told where I had to be. The child had to be forensically examined. But at this point, the doctor had treated it and it was days after. And we go through that experience. Um, they couldn't find anything uh, concerning. And we left and that was it. And soon after that, father found out that this exam happened. And he marched down to my child's preschool and started yelling and screaming at them, blaming them for hurting his child's rectum. And that went on for a good week or so until he was finally arrested for harassment to the school. And then my son was expelled from preschool. And visits continued. Um, Child starts wetting himself starts isolating, starts having, you know, more and more behavioral signs that he was not doing well. And father's following me around everywhere I go. He's videoing me. He's harassing me, my mom, my brother. And I just keep documenting everything. And after three months, you know, he's finally arrested for felony stalking. He had no problem showing the police all of his videos. Uh, that he had been taking of me and my family and him harassing us. And we were back under a protection order. And um, next thing I hear is from the CASA organization who, you know, supervised exchanges at the time that, you know, visits were back on. There's no more protection order. And I was like, wow, like, it's funny. I never heard from anybody about the felony stalking charge or the violation of all the protection orders or the harassment of the school. That's, I'm hearing it from a CASA person. Like, that's kind of strange. And so I called the DA. And I'm like, uh, someone talk to me about what's going on. And well, we, we've made a decision. We're just going to dismiss everything. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, he's, you know, he's hired this big time lawyer. And, you know, honestly, if you go to court, it's just going to be, you know, a contentious divorce. You know, no one, no one wants to sit in a jury with two people that are angry at each other. Okay. 
but we're going to put, you know, what's called a consideration on this felony stalking. So if he stalks you again, you know, you just let us know. Okay, thanks. So that there was no recourse, I'm guessing, once the DA drops the case. Not done. That was it. So the at this time, I, you know, thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, send my, my son to some kind of like play therapy and you know, the wedding was just out of control. He was, you know, wedding and screaming when he was wedding, you know, five, six times a day. And so I took him to, you know, a PhD therapist and we started to go once a week and, you know, and got into a routine and, and it was, I thought it was good. You know, it was, he had an outlet to play and I felt like, okay, someone else is looking in. Like I, I, I felt like a weight was sort of lifted off of me because, I knew I was powerless and, and I, it was like, oh, finally someone else can sort of tell me if there's anything I need to worry about because I, I can't tell anymore if there's something I need to worry about. And again, it, it, it's back into this level of confusion. And so there was injuries that kept happening and, you know, bruises across the nose and things that, you know, on a normal level, you would say, oh, the child must have tripped and and then the father, you know, takes the child for his own testing for allergies because he didn't believe the top hospital in this state, even though I had sole decision making, he never conferred with me at all. And then, you know, the rectum things were happening and I would see them and I would be like, I, what do I do? Or am I going to go back to the pediatrician and go through all that? You know, and so it just gets to this point where you're like, is this happening or is this not happening? And uh, what's going to actually happen to stop it? And in my heart, I believed nothing. And so my son started to disclose, you know, you know, he's three. So it was things that were happening during therapy that made this therapist concerned. And she's like, I, I can't, can't let these things go. I have to make a report. And I remember saying like, oh God, don't make a report. Like, don't make a report. Please don't. <laughs> She's like, I have a mandatory reporter and this is what I have to do. And what was going through your mind when you were asking her not to report? Well, you know, it, it's just fear, pure fear. Um, because you know, there had been previous relationships. You know, this person was a celebrity in town. I mean, he is just like the greatest thing in the world. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, I had already been shunned from the community for, for leaving him, even though everyone knew that he was arrested and pleaded guilty to domestic violence. People would come up to me on the street and harass me. I mean, it was... Uh, it was extremely isolating. And so I think the fear was based on, oh, he's just going to get another person to believe him and, and give them the facts. And, and I think it puts my child at risk, you know. So what's the situation currently with your son and your ex-husband? Currently, my son had been uh, through the department, um, had been supervised. And the judge who was also, he was the dependency and neglect judge, as well as the family law judge, you know, decided to throw out the dependency and neglect after the child was finally supervised for two months. 
and gave the father his his hearing for the request of overnights. And that decision came out early this year that ordered the father to go from supervised parenting for just a few hours at a time. He's never had the child longer than three hours unsupervised to overnights every other weekend, seven hours one way, and summers and most holidays. So that's the situation right now. Your son sees his father who lives seven hours away from you. Yes. Every other weekend, et cetera, and all the holidays and holidays, et cetera. But what is the arrangement in terms of the transportation? Do you have to bring your son to him? Does he pick him up from your place if you're the primary caretaker and custodian? So on Fridays at 3 p.m. after a week of school, the father picks the child up at 3 p.m., drives him seven hours. Then I drive 15 hours on a Sunday to bring my child home, to get home between midnight, 1 a.m. on a school night. The second weekend of the month is just whatever the father wants. If he wants the weekend to be here or there or anywhere, he gets to choose. He gets to choose if he wants the weekend or if he doesn't fit in his schedule. But the seven-hour one is court-ordered. You know, so the expense of driving and where we live, it's extreme driving. It's not just, you know, driving down a highway. It's It can take easily two extra hours, winter conditions, as well as traffic and things like that. Is there any opportunity for you to appeal the current visitation order? So, yes, in the beginning of the year, when the order came out, I, my friends, um, at this point, I had spent $365,000 of my life savings in this effort to protect my son, and I was clearly out of money. And I also take care of my disabled mom who had a stroke. And so my friends raised money to do an appeal. So we filed this appeal and the attorney filed the what's called a motion for stay. And, um, you know, reiterating all of the facts in the case and the parental evaluator's recommendation of not only supervised parenting, but supervised parenting with a supervisor and a mental health professional that this child has suffered emotional and physical harm and that continuing unsupervised parenting will cause this child to have long-term physical and emotional damage, which he does already. I mean, my child's been diagnosed with PTSD and separation anxiety and general anxiety, still wets himself on visitations. And so we filed this motion for stay. And it's one of those things that, you know, you read it because the facts were never presented uh, in the hearing of any difference, that there wasn't any level of improvement from the final orders until that time. In fact, the Department of Human Services supervised him. And he just doesn't rule on it. So he doesn't deny the motion to stay. He doesn't make any statements. He just doesn't rule on it. So that had to get included into the appeal. And so the appeal process, you know, I think I'm up to I don't know, $25,000, $30,000 so far. And, you know, I have another eight months to go. 
And so it, it just, you know, the, the story continues. I mean, there, there had been over this period of time of unsupervised parenting, there had been 12 reports by medical professionals child reporting to his therapist that he he rubs his junk on me and laughs and he hurts my fanny and um it's a gentle touch it feels good and you know things that when you hear as a mom it, it's it's so shocking but you see this level of innocence in a child where they they are not comprehending any of it as anything wrong. And you have this moment where you sit there and you keep your voice calm and you listen. And my, my strategy was always, how do you feel? How, does, how do you feel when this happens? Because I, I couldn't react any other way because I had to send them back the next day. And if I reacted in a way that was was letting this child, this little innocent, sweet baby, like know that that this was so incredibly wrong or that, you know, he should be screaming and fighting and all those things, then I, I'm placing fear into him. And so as a mom, you you live with this level of 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 guilt and betrayal because you're normalizing it. Because I have recognized that my only power for my child is is to to teach him how to be empowered himself and to teach him that his voice matters even when it may not seem that way and to teach him that he has personal boundaries and that that people shouldn't you know be crossing those boundaries whether it's his friends or you know I, I've never used a name I've never. I've never once have ever wanted to say that this person is negative in any way because I'm only hurting my child by doing that because if that's true, then I'm contradicting my behavior by sending him back over and over and over. I mean, I, I there were times in the car seat when he's holding on to the the metal bars and the seat in front of him screaming, why are you doing this to me? Begging me to not go. And the reality is, is that you yourself as a mom have to also live within this, this moral, I don't know. I don't know how the word I would use, but it's so morally wrong, but yet you yourself have to find ways to live with it and not only empower yourself, but empower your child that life can bring really, really terrible things. And sometimes our only power is strengthening ourselves and finding our voices and, and speaking those voices as loud as we can. Wow. So I feel like this is a great place to end, <laughs> Courtney. But before we do so, I want to give you an opportunity to share what the the three hashtags that we use for survivor stories are abuser tactics, signs of abuse, and upstander tips. I think we covered the first two pretty comprehensively in our conversation. What opportunities do you think 
different people that you've interacted with and your son has interacted with, do they have to be upstanders to you in your relationship currently and to other survivors? Now, I think when you go through a process of specifically with coercive control, I think as I've I've said throughout most of this interview is that there there's this constant level of confusion. And one thing that I, you know, I have I have close friends that say, you know, how are you doing this? How how are you not um, screaming and losing it and you know climbing down to the Capitol Hill and raging about your child? And I think sadly, you know. With Ruth Ginsburg, uh, sadly, recently dying, but one of the favorite, my favorite things are fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And, and that quote for me is so powerful because as moms, if we are emotional beings, and especially when it comes to our children and family courts do not want emotional beings. They want facts. And then they get the facts, but then they have the discretion to believe what facts that they want. And so one thing that I think has helped me continue to fight and is finding women, women like you and, and other survivors who, as I say, get it. They get what we have all experienced and, and, and friends sometimes think that I'm the only one. <laughs> And no, this is an issue that is happening all over our world. And it's up to us to reach out to each other and figure out the ways that we are going to fight like good old Ruthie and be effective in our fight that can hopefully bring out the sexism and the misogyny and the coercive control that is so the root of family law, especially in our country. Thank you so much, Courtney. And we look forward to having you join our community conversation about this very important topic as well. Thank you, Terry, for having this opportunity to tell a story, my story. And, and I hope that there are women out there that can feel comfort in knowing that there are other moms who get it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.